Welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. Today, I'm delighted to share my interview with Sanjay Rao. It's a totally interesting story. Sanjay and I actually, unbeknownst to the two of us, we had the same spiritual teacher way back in... I think it was about 1995-96 and we discovered in this interview that our paths crossed a couple times. So we don't have any recall of that, but it was a delightful discovery in this show. What I was interviewing Sanjay about is his amazing film called 3100 Run and Become and it's about a 3100 mile marathon, which all takes place in a neighborhood in New York City, running around a single block. And it more than chronicles just this race. It goes very deeply into the spiritual basis of running. And it, it's really a remarkable film. It's beautiful. The imagery is just amazing. But we really explore this film and the remarkable intersection of running and meditation, running and self-transcendence, running and spiritual realization. I had such a good time talking with Sanjay about this topic. I run every day and I meditate every day. And these two things, they're, uh, I'm passionate about both of them. So it was delightful to talk to Sanjay about both of these practices. And it was delightful to talk with him about this remarkable film he made. And I think you're absolutely going to love it. Sanjay is a wealth of information. And if you're a runner, if you're a meditator, or if you're just interested in self-transcendence and going beyond limits, then you're going to love this interview and you're going to love the movie. So without further ado, let's jump into my interview with Sanjay Rao. Sanjay, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you here. Hey, Morgan, it's great to be on your show and as people will learn to reconnect after some 25 yes. odd years. Yes. Everyone, Sanjay and I ha kind of realized after connecting that we were overlapping in our spiritual community for a while and may or may have not spent time together and met each other, but it was a, it was a happy coincidence and just added uh, nuance and sort of texture to the this interview, and we're both really excited about it. And Sanjay, can you just give everyone like the just the elevator pitch, who you are and what you do? I'm a, a documentary filmmaker now, based in New York City, but I didn't come to this career through any formal schooling. spent I spent 25 years studying with Sri Chinmoy, and. Um, kind of luckily developed a, a real sense of who I was, what I wanted in life before having to launch into uh, responsibility, so to speak. And, and that mm. was a, a tremendous blessing. Mm. Then let's talk about that. Like you were, have been part of this community for 25 years. Is that what you said? Yeah. So, you, you know, you and I probably have a similar kind of origin story, so to speak. Yeah. I'm from India, but I, I spent like 99.9% .9 of my life here in the States. My parents, you know, were very, very open, very kind of like, 
universal in their in their acceptance of different faiths and traditions and, and that's a hallmark of of like real hinduism mm. so i wasn't pushed into any particular type of spiritual practice or forced into any type of religious structure even though those ideas were very much present right so, long story short you know in in college and i, I went to, to to berkeley in mm. california mm. Tons of meditation groups there. I started there in 1992. I'd already read a little bit about Tibetan Buddhism, and you know, coming from like a conservative community in California, didn't have access to anything other than books. Right. And so when I got to Berkeley, I was blown away that people were actually practicing the stuff. Mm. That there were centers to go to, and being a college student, the main limitation was money so yes. i could yes. i could only go to things that were free yeah and you know in this day and age for better or for worse that cuts out like 75 percent of the uh, of the options or at least it cuts out the options that are the best marketed mm. so i would go to the Hare krishna temple and the bonus there was it wasn't just free but they'd like give you a meal yes um, and i ended up like reconnecting with a high school friend who had just joined an esoteric Zen Buddhist group. And I don't want to really get into it too much because it's too wacky, but you know, I was so excited and so like immature. And this is where our stories totally diverge for a second. I was totally immature and didn't realize that this was like a full-on cult of personality. Hmm. That said, this particular teacher was a college professor of English literature in his like former practice and had kind of literally forced upon his thousand students the 20 or 30 most important modern spiritual texts from like the ancient ones, like the Bhagavad Gita to the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Yes. And before this, I was just reading stuff like Richard Bach and the books that were like condensations of the Dalai Lama's teachings. Yes. But but nothing really deep. Mm. And as I was reading those books, a world opened up and I realized for better or for worse that I was not with the teacher that had his own act together. And that basically left me open to finding another path. And I, I came across Sri Chinmoy's path, um, probably around the same time you did, and, or at least at, at the same age yeah. as you did. Yeah. And it just blew my mind that you could you, that there was a possibility of living a pure spiritual life in the middle of a Western in Western surroundings. Yes. All right. So you had actually growing up, you didn't have an a religious upbringing. You actually had an upbringing which was because it was Hindu. You did you have like a, an altar in the house? Did you have kind of any sort of ritualistic context in your family life? I mean, the great thing about Hinduism is like every single family has an altar. Yes. And you have icons all over the house and yeah. it's, it's, it's decorations, but it's, it's not the kind of like, we don't push things on any guests. Like, you know, if you go into someone's right. house, that's from an, like a, a real Orthodox tradition and their house is filled with iconography and, and like kitsch, you really feel like, oh my God, they're going to ask me to join this religion. Yeah. But Hinduism kind of is the opposite of that. It's more like decoration rather mm -hmm. than an actual like like seat of, of practice. So dis despite being you know surrounded by icons and surrounded by texts, 
I, I, I didn't know what meditation was. And, you know, fair enough, neither did my parents because, you know, Hinduism has a lot of singing and a lot of chanting. So yeah. the hard stuff isn't really practiced. So uh, I didn't know how to meditate. And it, like, when, I, when I came to it in college, it definitely wasn't through a Hindu perspective. Right. So what compelled you in this direction? Did you have a, a hunger? Or did Because obviously you had a religious context at home, but what pushed you into seeking for actual depth of being? I mean, that, that's a great question. And I think it's probably kind of like the universal answer that, you know, things in life aren't going your way. You're confused. You realize that 90% of your decisions end up not being so good. And you struggle to figure out how not to make mistakes, right. especially with life choices. And, you know, in college, it's not life or death, but, you know, when, when you're a freshman and someone's saying like, hey, you've got to pick a major to choose what you're going to do for the next 60 years, it's kind of daunting. <laughs> totally. Right. And, and I, I realized, and maybe this was my, my good fortune, I realized that, nothing, that I wasn't doing anything of my own volition that, mm. you know, God bless them, but it was, it was my, my parents. It was like the idea of being a doctor or, or an engineer that kind of was inspiring me in a certain direction, but that I didn't have the wherewithal to actually choose on my own. Yeah. And my high school buddy was like, Hey, that's why you need meditation. It's like, it's self-discovery. Mm. It's learning who you are in every sense of the word. That's awesome. Okay. So then you found Sri Chinoy and, and something clicked. Basically, you know, I, I, I was fortunate to have, have read a number of, of texts from different traditions that yes. basically said, you know, you've got to have a teacher. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that teacher is like Jesus or Buddha or Krishna, but people kind of have a, a, a the misnomer that like, because meditation is so outwardly personal, it really relies on personal effort to a great degree that it's your effort and that you don't need a guide. Mm. And that I, I realized, because I'm in college at the same time, like, you know, you have a teacher for everything. Right. And I, I did track and I did Kung Fu and you have a, a teacher there that like the idea of, of having a teacher for meditation seemed natural. And so I just cast the net out again, but rather than looking for a spiritual path the way I had before, I was this time really looking for a teacher. Yeah. Well, interesting. All right, so it sounds like, well, I'm, I'm curious to know for you then, did you have an experience? Was there an experience for you or was there, what was the thing that clicked like for you? Like, did, did you have like a mind expanding experience? Did you like, tr did you have a heart experience? Did you, did, did you have a connection to Sri Chimoy? What was the thing that you were like, this is my teacher. Wait, how did you know that? That's a great question. And I'm going to answer it as, as, as personally as I can. So the, the first six or seven months, I was just kind of like going through the motions. And, you know, when, when you're in something new, whether it's a sport or a spiritual path, you know, there's insecurity. You're trying to like, you know, dive into a community where there's relationships that have already existed for 20, 30 years. And um, after about nine months, Sri Chinmoy was, was actually passing through Northern California. Mm. 
en route to Asia. I'd never met him before. And, and I haven't had an experience like this since. But the night before we were going to see him, and for me the first time, just when I was going to sleep, I, I actually had a, a, a vision of a mountain. And I was seated across from it. And there was a, a very, very strong presence to my left. And I, I, couldn't, I wasn't looking at the presence. I was looking at the mountain. And as visions go, this mountain was, was golden in color. Mm. And the next day, when I saw Sri Chinmoy, I just kind of passed by him. You know, as you might remember, you know, he had a style of, of, of darshan or like witness where, you know, you would, you would just walk by him in silence, kind of a walking meditation. Yeah. And like pause for a few seconds in front. And that's when his like inner focus and outer focus would be on you. Mm. So when I, when I did that, I've felt right away that he was the exact same presence as was standing next to me in this vision. And, mm. and it was clear in this vision that this was, these were the Himalayas and I was not in jeans and, and uh, a North Face jacket. But two months later on his way back from Asia, we all went from our little meditation center in Berkeley down to Los Angeles. And people were telling stories about how on this trip to Nepal, the government had, had you know, offered him kind of an honor. They'd named a mountain after him. And he was saying that for several incarnations in, in, in the past, he actually meditated in a cave across from this mountain. And wow. so, like, even though it was a total outer coincidence, like the government just picked an unnamed mountain and said, like, we're going to call this a Sri Chinmoy Peace Mountain. Yeah. He said it was like not a, weirdly enough, it wasn't a coincidence. And he handed out a picture. Backing up, after I'd had this like little mini vision, I actually sketched it out and painted, you know, a, an eight by ten like rendition of what I saw. Mm -hmm. And it was up the mountain, and it was golden. And you know, two months later, he actually passed out a photo of this street in my peace mountain, and it was the not just the exact same mountain; it was the exact same angle. And I'd I'd sketched out the mountains I'd seen behind it from this angle and of course in a photo all of those things are included yeah and i looked at the photo and i was just like oh my god I i'm home wow i mean that doesn't happen to everybody and yeah. it's probably never ever happened to me in any incarnation before but i and, and I, I it wasn't like i had any hesitancy or insecurity at this stage but it just struck home like this is it like yeah you know, learn to live with it because this is the path that you're going to spend the rest of your life on. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. I, can, I mean, I can relate. I definitely had a moment with my previous teacher where it was uh, this, I'm home, like you said, this is it. And I had no doubt, you know, it, it when it was clear, it was clear. There was no turning back. So that's that's an awesome story. I mean, ultimately, like the Supreme, the God is our only guru. And, you know, it, it's an important thing in Hinduism to kind of have a vessel for those teachings. Yeah. Um, whether the person, again, is Jesus or whether it's, it, it, it's, it's a man or a woman um, who just has a small little yoga studio. The idea of, of self-discovery is the annihilation of our ego and understanding that there's a much greater sense of self that we have access to. And that's kind of this idea of like ultimately becoming one with the universe. But that process, it literally is not just one of inner supplication, 
It's one of outer supplication. Like you have to learn to listen. You have to learn to be obedient and stop getting in your own way. And sometimes just having the presence of an outer teacher, even if they're just one inch above you in experience, I mean, that can be that can be the difference of in, in like making fast progress or really not making much progress at all. Right. That's awesome. All right. Well, so I want to talk about, you know, you were referring to the inner effort and the outer effort. And I think, you know, that relates very much to your film, which we want to talk about. But before we get into the film, can you can you talk a little bit about who Sri Chimoy was, the kind of character and essence of his teachings and, and the community and the and the focus? Can you can you share a little bit about that in, in terms of your own experience so we can give people help give people a little context f- for you know the film which we're gonna go into. For, for sure. You know, in a nutshell, Sri Chinmay was born in India in the 30s and was raised in a very dynamic spiritual ashram um, in South India, the Sri Aurobindo ashram. And it was one of a new wave of Indian spiritual communities that really embraced the dynamism of the West. And, it, you know, and we say dynamism of the West, but as people might know, up until recently, India was very much a culture of, of outer strength and warriors. Our, our greatest epic, the Bhagavad Gita, was actually a conversation between Krishna and, and Arjuna, two exemplary warriors on the precipice of battle. And so, like India's tradition isn't this isn't one of just silent contemplation and passivity. You know, obviously India was colonized because of that by the British. But that said, like the Sri Aurobindo ashram was incredibly dynamic. And when Sri Chinmoy himself moved to the U.S. in the '60s. It kind of brought that idea of integrating the inner life and the outer life, basically not negating the physical body. I mean, that that kind of seems so elementary in the West, but in India in the 16, 17, 1800s, it was spiritual to neglect the body, to like go into austerity, to not feed it, to not have a strong body. And that ultimately, you know, hurt the whole subcontinent. So this new wave of teachers coming from the East, not just India, but from Japan and from China and Southeast Asia and the Sufis, all looked at the integration of the inner life and the outer life, which meant two things. Like you could live in the world uh, and not just live in a cave. But number two, you needed to make the body strong. You needed to run. You needed to do yoga. You needed to look at giving the body certain goals and not just your mind and heart certain goals. Mm. So lastly, like when, when I joined his path and when, when you joined, it's like there were runs where his students had run literally, you know, as a team through 48 states. Yeah. There were marathons. There were ultra marathons. There, you know, a race started in 1997 that still exists, and it's what I made the movie on. It's the world's longest ultra marathon, and it's 3,100 miles, where people have to run at least 60 miles a day for 52 days in order to complete this race. It's uh, it's amazing. I'm so excited you kind of bought up the Sri Aurobindo Ashram because I know because you just you gave a a, a beautiful kind of. Uh, segue there to going into the film but if but if we could just press pause on that and back up just a little bit Sri Chimnoy or uh, rather Sri Aurobindo Sri Chimnoy's 
teacher, my understanding is, you know, he he was a real revolutionary in India, like you were saying. He he was like almost like he pre- preceded Gandhi a little bit, right? And he he was imprisoned early on and in prison he had this sort of awakening experience and and had more of like your traditional ground of being awakening to the infinite but then it seemed like he then went in this new direction that you're talking about where his whole thing became about evolution right and can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, you were speaking to it, but he was such a giant, and he wrote this, the this tome, right, the Life Divine, and I. So when I was when I was a student of Sri Chimoy's, I did I hadn't because there was at the time he had this sort of prohibition about he didn't really want people engaging with his teachers or uh, the ashram, but like when I started to learn about who his teacher was, I was floored. I mean, he was he was like an extraordinary person. So, in terms of your lineage, going right back through uh, Sri Aurobindo, can you just say a few words about him and and how you relate to that and how and like because he really he really did, as you said, sort of he was this massive integrator in a way that was brand new for India and that for the world in a lot of respects. But can you speak to that a little bit? Totally. And I'm not coming from any expert perspective. Like as, as you mentioned, it's like, you know, when you join a spiritual path, you know, your teacher is your teacher. And it's not like, you know, his teacher or her teacher is your grandfather. And so like many teachers on many paths will say like, hey, you're on my path. Um, like, don't get all confused going to other teachers teachings right now. So like what I picked up about Sri Arbinda was was just over the years and, and kind of like, you know, Sri Chinmoy's own reflections on him. Um, obviously a massive presence in Sri Chinmoy's life. And he was, I, 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 I'm saying this as an Indian, he was the antithesis of Gandhi. Yeah, Like Gandhi was a politician through and through, and he put on this kind of like saintly garb, but you know, he's arguably responsible for the detriment of India. You know, he was the one who pushed for the division of India into three countries, mm. two countries, now three, Bangladesh and Pakistan. And you know, India is in a forever war against Pakistan for no reason whatsoever. So uh, Gandhi advocated the, like this passivity, whereas Aurobindo and, and Subhash Chandra Bose and these revolutionaries from the late 1800s advocated a more kind of militaristic approach, like, like the, the, the colonists in the United States. Yeah. But Aurobindo was actually imprisoned for bombing a very, right. very, very kind of like an ally, a, a, a British judge that had a lot of compassion towards the revolutionary cause. Now, he didn't do it, but he was thrown into jail. And he was put into solitary confinement because, you know, he was he was seen as that type of a terrorist. Yeah. But in that solitary confinement, he had an awakening and he had his first visions of Krishna. And Krishna basically said, like, in your trial, don't say a thing. Don't open your mouth. Like, I'm going to speak through your lawyer. Mm. And that lawyer, Chittaranjan Das, C.R. Das, gave this speech that was, I mean, if people Google it, it was so epic about the future of humanity and about light and love and universality and what Aurobindo actually stood for. But that said, like, when he was freed, he was still sort of a wanted man, and the British were still trying to connive ways to capture him yeah and and so he left 
British India, Calcutta, and and remained on the subcontinent, but went to this kind of obscure remnant French colony north of Madras called Pondicherry, mm. where he was safe, even though it was only like 100 square miles. He was safe. And his revolutionary friends flocked down there to kind of get the next plans. But he said that, you know, he'd had this vision of, of the Supreme and, and the Supreme had said that, you know, you needed to be an inner revolutionary. Yeah. So esoterics will say, and I apologize, like I'm, I'm in Brooklyn right now and there's like a garbage truck doing his thing outside no the window. But esoteric, you know, as esoterics will say that Aurobindo's meditations from like 1926 on basically were like depositing money into a spiritual bank where all of the subsequent revolutionaries of India drew from. And the kind of ultimate proof is that arbitrarily, the then president of India, Gandhi's kind of heir, Jawaharlal Nehru, proclaimed August 15th, 1947, as the Independence Day of India. And that happened to be Sri Aurobindo's 75th birthday. Mm. And so like, like, like no coincidences yeah. there yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's extraordinary. And I, I remember, I remember reading about like during World War II, like people, like people who didn't know Sri Aurobindo, I mean, this is all, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but that on the, on the front lines, people would have, people who didn't know about him were having visions of him out on the front, like in the midst of the cataclysm of World War II. And that he, he was just, he was a giant, you know? He was, a, he, he was just a spiritual, he was just a towering figure. I mean, he really saw that as a battle for the future for the, of, of the world. Totally. And there's actually plenty of like documentary evidence where he would tell people results of certain battles. This is obviously pre-internet. Like well before any newspapers locally had printed them, well before those results were even like sent to anybody in India. So yeah, like an inner giant and an outer giant. Yeah. All right. So okay. Thank you for indulging me and in talking about Sri Sri Aurobindo and the fact that Sri Chimoy grew up in his ashram really from when he was a, a very young man, right? Or a boy or a young man. Yeah, I mean, from the from the age of eleven, like, yeah. Sri, Sri Chinmoy's brother was a member of the ashram, eldest brother, and Sri Chinmoy's parents both died within the span of six months from basically village diseases in in eastern India. Yeah, and the eldest brother took, you know, his his younger his his uh, two two younger brothers and you know three younger sisters all down to join him. Um, so from the age of eleven, you know, Sri Chinmoy was plunged into uh, an atmosphere of extraordinary spiritual discipline. Hmm. And like you talk about structure, and 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 the fact that some paths have some structure, some paths don't. Sri Chinmoy in the Aurobindo ashram was meditating between eight and eleven hours a day, like starting at at two o seven in the morning. So like some yeah. paths really focus on on that type of discipline, and that path was was no exception. Wow. So yeah, obviously laying the ground for this sort of powerful context of self-transcendence. 
which you were alluding to before earlier when you were talking about this this 3100 mile marathon is sort of the the apex of that manifesting that kind of self-transcendence can you so you made a film about this race and let's let's a documentary film when everyone i highly recommend you check it out it's it's really compelling beautifully beautifully put together and Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the film, what your your goals and your your ambitions and aspirations were with the film, and yeah, just can you just take us in? Totally. So I, I moved from Berkeley to New York in 1997 in the winter, and the summer of 1997, when I was living in Queens, in Sri Chinmoy's community, uh, it was the first year of a new race that he started called the self-transcendence 3100 miler and that's what i alluded to earlier 60 miles a day for 52 days i ran in college and high school but i like my longest event was a one mile and so the idea of 3100 miles was was worse than frightening yeah and i didn't get the race i didn't understand it i didn't really even help out with it because it was it just seemed bonkers yeah Sri Chinmoy passed in 2007, but on a trip to Santa Fe in 2015, I came across a group called Wings of America, a small Native American nonprofit, and they introduced me to one of their board members, a man named Sean Martin, who was a a pretty illustrious Navajo marathoner. I went on a morning run with Sean through a place called Canyon de Chez, one of the most sacred, yeah, one of the most sacred canyons, and gorgeous, unbelievably gorgeous. So for me, the first time having this being the first time running in that canyon, I should have been like in the highest heaven of delight. But even before we started, I could see in Sean's eyes that he was going to get more from this run than I ever would. And afterwards, I asked him, like, what did you get out of this run? Like, you do this every single day. And Mm. I can see in you this like that that you've actually used this as a meditation. Like, how? And he said, look, from time immemorial, men and women have used running for three things, for, to understand that, that, that running is a celebration of life. You know, it, it represents every good thing in life, connecting with nature, connecting with your heart, your lungs, your friends. That running is a teacher, that it teaches you to overcome obstacles in life. And it teaches you how to become a better person because you know, when you're tired, you know, you've got to learn how to push through. But the most important thing he mentioned was that running is a prayer. When you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. You're asking them for their blessings, and you're showing them that you're willing to work for those blessings. And that when you make a, when you run, you're making a connection. You're making a connection to the land, to the Creator, to the holy people. And when you do make that connection, you'll not just become a champion. You'll become a warrior. Mm-hmm. And that's when I understood why 10 to 15 people from around the world came to do the 3,100-mile race every year. That running was humanity's first religion. It was not just a way to hunt. And, you know, we, in, the, in the movie, we spend time with three cultures, with the Navajo, with uh, the Kalahari Bushmen, with the Tendai Japanese monks who do a 1,000-day trek of running, which is an exceptional kind of form of discipline for enlightenment. So with Sean 
And then going to the Kalahari with the Bushmen, they made it clear that despite what evolutionary biologists say, you know, their own understanding was that running wasn't the wasn't our evolutionary advantage. People say, in a nutshell, that men and women, you know, as bipedal creatures on the savanna, didn't have a strength advantage, but we had the an endurance advantage mm. because. When we ran, we didn't have to couple our breathing the way quadrupeds do. Like when quadrupeds extend, their lungs open. When quadrupeds push off the ground, their lungs push out air. They contract. But the Bushmen said, no, you know, consciousness comes before form. It's like we were able, we we're able to catch these creatures and harness the power of running because running is a way that we can harness the power of the land and more importantly, we can connect to the creator and understand if it's the creator's will for us to capture an animal or not. Mm. And they've been in the Kalahari for 125,000 years. And so everything suddenly synthesized for me. And I, I made a film called 3100 Run and Become, which follows a, a, a Finnish paper boy and a, an Austrian cellist as they attempt this, the world's longest running race, which incidentally just takes place around a, a half mile loop around a high school um, for logistical reasons to keep people out of traffic. And because when you're running in that kind of contained environment, it doesn't matter what the surroundings are. It's like you're generating delight from your heart. And you kind of want to be in an area where food is accessible, restrooms are accessible, there's no traffic so that you can enter into a flow and remain in that meditative consciousness through running for hours and days and weeks on end. That's essentially what the movie's about. And I have to say, it's like, it took me 25 years of being on this path and making this movie to understand, you know, what a powerful tool for the spiritual life, something like running or walking can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, go I mean, ahead. If you, think, if you think about it, lastly, like, you know, if you go way back in the day, you know, 500,000, 10,000 years ago, people went on pilgrimage. And the act of going on pilgrimage to very sacred sites, not just like, you know, your local yoga studio or your local zendo or your local church, places where people had been building an energy, a consciousness for thousands of years. Like that idea of pilgrimage was essential to the human experience. You either did it once a season, you did it once a year, you did it once in a lifetime, and oftentimes you went on foot. And that actual process of getting to that shrine was purification in and of itself. Yeah. Because when you move on your feet, they're connecting to the energy of the earth. You're breathing in the air, and there's this like cataclysm of activity and cleansing that happens in our body which makes our mind clearer and our hearts purer. And yeah, and you're you're in a in a context of a pilgrimage, you're moving away from the known, right? You're moving away from your home ground into the unknown. So your familiar habits and rituals, the things that can and do restrain or constrain us, you they just start to melt, right? And you're entering into just inner and open inner and outer openness and unknown and I, and I I love that pilgrimage metaphor as a as a spiritual one like you're talking about because it's so it's so powerful and you know when you were talking I remember in Tibet often well, I don't know about often but I know some of 
some monks will will prostrate through their entire pilgrimage to the the holy city you know they'll they'll be on the side of the road and they're not walking they're they're doing prostrations the entire way that's how they're getting there and exactly so yeah. like I th- th- think about the physicality of that yeah. and, and and this is this is where it's like it becomes extremely practical like even in a in a really hard workout like let's say it's not in a gym where you're you're forced to like complete a certain distance or where you where you're at a turnaround point on a run, a walk, or a bike ride, and you're forced to go all the way back to your starting point. You encounter physical barriers that you have to push through. And for anyone that's done a race from 5K on up and had a hard race, like you learn so much about yourself when you have to harness the power of your mind and break through a physical barrier when you have to seek that physical experience of self-transcendence, going beyond pain, turning that pain into joy and happiness. And the lessons that we get from that physical activity in our kind of purely metaphysical life, you know, those, those are tremendous. And those really unlock different layers of potential. So did you do the 3100? No, I, I, I haven't, although I, I, I want to. Yeah, um, but I, 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 in preparation for making the film, I did a six-day race. Wow! So what? I, what does a six-day race entail? So six-day race is is sort of like the thirty-one hundred, where you're going around the loop, and everything you need is is right there on the course, from you know meals and you have your your tent and you know. But the idea in the six-day race is to do as many miles as you can in six days. And I have to say, like the one thing I learned from that is. Yeah, I, I would have never, never anticipated this. But I think probably many of your listeners have had experiences doing some sort of fast or some sort of cleanse. And you know, you you know that in the first day or two of any sort of like calorie restriction, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. But after a couple of days, you know, what we know as as a process of ketosis, like a different chemical process starts to turn on. And it, it makes it energetically easier. Mm. And I found in these multi-day races, not like not just marathons or ultras, but when you're running for a few days at a time, there comes a stage when your mind turns off. And when your mind turns off, pain isn't pain anymore. Like, yeah, it's there as a reality. And you know that it's not like, you know, just relaxation. But you enter into this state where you're getting different level of satisfaction than you should yeah and it makes that idea of running those distances like the opposite of torture mm. you, you can't do a six you can do a six-day race just gutting it through but you can't do a 3100 mile race going like you know mind over matter you've, you've got to go so much deeper and it can't be the absence of of you know, it, it can't just be pure concentration. You have to get into a state where you're beginning to feel happy and you're beginning to feel the results of meditation in real time. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So how, over the six days, how far did you run? You know, I, I did a good first day and then like the, fir- the middle, because this is my first six day ever, yeah. like the middle three days were horrible. <laughs> Because I, 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 you know, it's like I, I got a little injury, but my mind was just 
totally, totally killing me. Yeah. It was so bored. I couldn't, I, and I, I, and I hadn't trained, I hadn't trained properly, even spiritually. To, and I, I didn't know how to find joy in exertion. Yeah. But on the last day, everything opened up and like, I ran so hard and so far and with so much joy and so much gratitude hmm. that it informed my running every single run since that race in 2015. But now I realize, like Sean Martin, if I start a run with the right intention, you know, it's like, like, like with meditation, you can meditate to like increase your concentration. You can meditate to learn to relax or you can meditate to find God. And no, I'm not saying any of those are, are, are bad goals, but it's similar with running. If you run to look good, running will do that for you. If you, run, if you wanna run to feel good, running will do that for you. But I didn't realize that if you want to run to transform your life, it'll do that for you too. And you just have to learn how to apply that focus on each and every run moment by moment and that for me requires like running with no music really trying to feel my feet on mother earth and feel my breath and that itself creates that connection with everything that's transformative mm -hmm. and i saw that with sean and i learned it in that six-day race let's talk a little bit about the marathon monks because they're the, the monks attend i right they're just they're next level and they've been doing this for centuries. Can you share with every? I mean, I, I've seen the movie and and well, a couple times seen the movie, the Marathon Monks, and they're they completely blow my mind. But can you just share with everyone a little bit about who the Marathon Monks were, who who they are, and why you chose to include them in the film? For sure. So in the year five fifty six, this Japanese monk. Saicho went to China and came back with Buddhism. And it was Tiantai, Chinese Buddhism, which the Japanese shortened to Tendai. But at the same time, he decided to start something called the Senichi Kaihogyo, the Thousand Day Trek. And he was based on Mount Hiai, Japan's most holy mountain, which is right outside of Kyoto. Basically, if people put their math hats on for a second, People have that and once once every eight to twelve years, uh, one aspirant is picked to do this journey, and they have to do a thousand days split up into ten hundred day cycles. Those hundred day cycles have to be completed within seven or eight years, which means most years you're doing one cycle. Some years you're doing two cycles. Each day of each cycle, or each cycle, I should say, has a prescribed daily distance. And it's not about the distance because they're actually doing specific routes that take you to specific temples and, and require you to do specific prayers at those temples. So the first cycle entails about 11 and a half miles a day. And, you know, you're going up and down essentially a 3,000 foot mountain on a single track, you know, not a wide trail. And it's muddy and you're wearing uh, bamboo sandals and, a, and a, an exotic looking white robe. So the first first few cycles are 11 and a half miles a day. Um, after you finish the sixth cycle, you have to do an eight and a half day purifying fast. And you know people have done eight and a half day fast, and you go like, okay, whatever, no food. Okay, that, that's number one. 
no food, not a big deal. Number two, no water. That's kind of a big deal. Number three, no sleep. You're sitting and chanting a particular mantra with the aid of, of, of brother and sister monks for eight and a half days. You recover from that, and then the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, tenth cycle start escalating to 35 miles a day and then 55 miles a day. And the idea there from the beginning is finding joy and bliss through movement and prayer and disregarding exertion entirely. But the kicker, the absolute kind of like crux of this quest is that you can't quit. I mean, it's not just that you'll no longer be a monk, but you're actually required, if you stop, if you don't complete a daily circuit, you're actually required to take your life. And no one's, no one's had to take their life in about 150 years or so, but plenty of people have had to do it across the now 1,500 years of this practice. And again, nobody is thinking about this ultimate consequence as they're going through it, but it's there. And that's what kind of makes it like, it, it keeps the practice pure. Otherwise, you know, let's say you did it, Morgan, and we all love you. And let's say at day 300, you know, you had an upset stomach. We go like, ah, we don't want Morgan to kill himself. So uh, let's just make it the 300-day quest. Yeah. And so it's a very Zen thing to have an incredibly serious consequence in order to keep the practice absolutely pure. Yeah. So just, so just to reiterate, everyone, the commitment is life and death. And, you know, as you say in the, the, the film, like, the path is lit. It, it is quite literally littered with the quote unquote remains or altars to, to those monks who have previously had to take their own lives. And you think about it like a sort of dramatic injury. Anything could happen, right? There's a certain, like, pr just such a profound surrender in that when they make the terms of the commitment absolute. And. <laughs> That's why, I mean, yeah. definitely. I mean, the, 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 the practice is voluntary. Like people apply, actually apply to do it. And it was my, it was like on a much different level. It was like my mistake with the six day race, not practicing the idea of meditative running, not practicing the concept of finding joy through each moment and not just thinking about like what I'm going to do when my run is over. So for these monks in Japan, 99.9% .9 of the preparation is under, it's having experience and pushing past their physical limits. So when they go out on the course, no day is daunting. And that, that's one of the reasons why they do that eight and a half day fast, because after that, the remaining four or five cycles of you know, 35, 55 mile days, they go like, I've taken my body to the precipice of death. Like nothing is actually going to, like no upset stomach, no right. dysentery, no headache, even a sprained ankle. Like I'm going to learn to channel energy and my mantra and alleviate that weakness. It's from, and, and 
isn't it if i rem- if i recall correctly the very the sort of the end of the entire thing what you said it's like a not seven to nine years what is it seven or nine it's between seven, you, you finish a thousand days between seven and eight years. Okay, yeah. And then I remember the final, final, like the very end is they do that eight to nine day fast in front of a raging fire, right? So, so yeah, at the end, they do um, six to eight day offering where villagers and devotees of this, of this temple compound write prayers on bamboo reeds. And for about t- 10 to 12 hours a day, the aspirant sits in front of a fire, reads the prayer, and offers the sticks. They, they can sleep, um, they can eat, but during that period of, of, of offering, they can't eat or drink. And it's interesting that you bring it up because the, the, aspirants, the aspirant that we talked to actually said that for him personally, that was more difficult than the eight and a half days. Yeah. He said, just the fact that you're in front of this flaming thing and, you know, for eight hours, you can't drink a sip of water and yeah. you're constantly reading these prayers. He said that that was actually a little more difficult. Yeah. Even though even though it sounds like the eight and a half days of no water, entirely eight and a half days would be more difficult. Well, and I think they, so it used to be that when they were, if I remember from the film, correct me if I'm wrong, but it used to be that in front of the fire, they were also not allowed to have water, but that just too many monks were perishing in this final stage because it was just, it was just the body couldn't handle sit both, you know, the combination of sitting in front of the fire and doing the full fast. And that at a certain point, they started to allow them to have water. It's an interesting thing because, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it, from 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 what they told me, the um, the six and a half, the eight and a half day fast that's yeah. done after the sixth cycle, yeah. that one they moved from August, which is relentlessly humid and hot in yeah. Kyoto, to October because people were literally like rotting from the inside out. Totally. Um, but still, like in that final offering, like during the fire ceremony, they don't they don't drink water at all. Good God, man! That's something else. I mean, it's not even mind over matter because like you, you literally, no human being, except for maybe somebody who's like, has a serious like neurological or psychological issue. Like nobody can, like, like that doesn't have like proper wiring. Like, I mean, no, nobody can like pull their will to do something like that. Yeah. You have to, you have to find a way to enjoy it. Yeah. For it to actually be not just austerity, but. A, a spiritual experience. Yeah, it's got it. You're right. It needs to come from someplace else. So one w- one thing that struck me when I was watching the film, the Finnish paperboy, as you call him, he lives rough. Like when you when you shoot him finishing his route and he's going into his home, it's like that guy lives rough. He's like roughing it. His home. It didn't look like there was much, if any, heat. He cooks his food over a bunsen burner you know like a little camping stove is that where he lives or is that like a training context where he's just living out in a cabin in primitive circumstances and that's part of his kind of preparing for the race i mean if you think about it this is the first century and for many people like post-world war ii unless you were royalty 
human beings didn't ever have experiences of comfort. Yeah. And like now, like the, like this particular you know character in the film who's done the thirty one hundred mile race multiple times, he lives in very Spartan conditions, and it's for him it's not austerity, it, it's it's simplicity. He's done so many like you know long trek backpacking trips like yeah. Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, where he's literally just lived out of a backpack for three or four months. He said that those those like three or four month backpacking trips taught him that he really just needs like he needs four things. He needs a sleeping bag, he needs a stove, he needs a jar of peanut butter, and he needs a spiritual book. And he can kind of get through anything, you know, across months with that. So his like regular lifestyle, he doesn't really have much and he doesn't want a lot of things. And I mean I contrast that with me. Like I moved to New York with one suitcase and one backpack. And I still live in the same neighborhood, Jamaica Hills, Queens, where Sri Chinmoy was based. And I, I have a house now, and I probably have like 2,000 books. I have so much crap. Yeah. And I go like, every year I'm just accumulating. Yeah. And not even in a really purely like Costco or Walmart American way. It's just a few things here and there, but across the span of 25 years, I basically have a, a junk show in my house. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's incredibly hard not to accumulate stuff. But yeah, that really stood out to me in the film. I thought, you, you know, that was really, that was a nice touch, like setting up his kind of life conditions that way and kind of showing him waking up and praying and meditating. I mean, at, yeah. at the same time, like, He's he's not as you know from the movie he's he's the opposite of like a joyless creature and his indulgence is I mean he, he this is weird right he's like forty five years old and he lives like a teenager he lives like in a shack with like not that much stuff but he subsists and it's a mess it's a mess he is like a he is like he does look like a teenager he's like I mean, a kid it's like a like if you went into a fifteen year old boy's room or a yeah. fifteen year old girl's room, just like it's not like filthy, but there's just stuff everywhere. Yeah. Um. But he subsists off of soda and chocolate. You're kidding, really? No, it's like he's like water is boring. What and is this guy made of? I know, and it's like like underneath his bed, he had a whole pile of like wrapped boxes of like IKEA chocolate, oh. and like in the morning he'd like grab some chocolate he'd like grab some orange soda and like go out for his run oh my god like, he's just perpetually in this state of like joy god bless him yeah he's, he's just he's built up different stuff and there's something about that that as you're kind of sharing that information which i you know i really appreciate it because it's like so much of our culture is just about sort of this ever you know Per, sort of calibrating everything to these epically like sort of minute and fine grain distinctions of wellness, you know, where you're getting your, every food is just like, you you know, you get everything lined up perfectly, you get the perfect sleep, you get all, the, all your life conditions. Because as you said, we've never had this much privilege, this much uh, space and time to actually invest in that. But it's like, 
he stands out in such stark relief to that whole cultural modality, which is, you know, that's what we're living in right now. And that's only increasing, you know, and especially related to like wellness. So it, it really, I like it because it, it's more actually, and thought about this, but obviously more aligned with the kind of self-transcendence that you get from the marathon monks. You, you feel that same really kind of austerity, but also like, I guess, you know, that term CCL, like I couldn't care less, you know, there's just a certain, almost uh, a strength or a deeper confidence that can come from like, okay, I don't care. Just, uh, it's, it's, it's true. This. It's true. Like in, in the 3,100 mile race, if you, you always have problems, like there's blisters, there's soreness, but if you focus on those problems, you magnify them and you give them strength. If you treat them with respect, you know, you take care of them the way you need to, but you don't care, then they don't stop you. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, the Kenyans have a saying that when you run or race, you have to run dumb because the, wor the your worst enemy is your mind mm. and your mind will overthink and overprocess mm. and expand problems into demons. But if you don't let it, if you live like Ashby Hunal, where you just go like George Burns, I'm going to eat Ikea chocolate and drink Coke all day George long Burns, and I'm going to yeah. be, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be, I'm going to move. I'm going to, you know, get joy from everything. You kind of stay eternally young. Hmm. So tell me how has the film been received? What, tell me a little bit about your journey now, kind of that, that the film is out what's the reception been like what what's what's been surprising for you like what have been the the highs maybe any like disappointments if there have been any like what how's it going and like what's it been a vehicle for and and has that really met your hope your hopes and aspirations in creating the film uh, I've, I've done other feature length films in the past i did one a couple of years ago about farm workers called food chains and our producer was Eva Longoria. So yeah, you know, she got yeah. on all the nightly talk shows and it was like a big splash, but somebody told me at, just as we were releasing this movie, 3100 run and become, which is now available, I think on Amazon prime, you could stream it. They were saying like kind of cryptically that this movie release is going to be like the race itself. And I didn't know what that meant. And I feel now it's like, like this movie, it just, it's, it's at its own pace. It's not going super fast, but it's like not relenting. Mm. For example, we just opened in theaters in Mexico city last week and it's going to, the film's going to end up going to about 30 or 40 cities in Mexico. And it's not like, you know, an Avengers film that's in thousands of theaters, like, you know, 20 screens, 20 shows a day, but a year after releasing it in about 40 cities in America, the movie is is still kind of maintaining momentum. Mm. And it wasn't like, you know, a big splash athletics movie like the Alex Honnold free solo climbing yes. up El Cap movie. Yeah. Where everybody saw it all at the same time. Yeah. People are kind of, in a weird way, they're kind of like discovering this movie the way we discover things when the time is right. Mm. So I kind of weirdly now I go like, this is, you know, it's kind of humbling for me. I say this is an offering for seekers. And it's, it's like somebody writing a poem 500 years ago that 
wasn't going to be read by a million people in the first six months, but across centuries has definitely been read by millions of people. And so in that sense, this movie is like a prayer and it's just getting out and people are watching it when the time is right and they're getting from it what they want to get from it and what they need to get from it. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm able to connect with seekers in this way and be of service to seekers of all different faiths and paths by doing something like creating a movie. So it's, it's wild and it's humbling and I'm, 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 I'm really feel privileged. So everyone, again, I can't underscore enough. You should go and see this movie. Get it on Amazon Prime. You will not regret it. It's in. You will go on the adventure with the runners. It's it's beautifully, beautifully shot. Like the cinematography is gorgeous. You end up in some of these, some of the most beautiful places. Like the run through Canyon de Chelly is just it's gorgeous. And then like the early mornings in Finland, like the the kind of quality of the light, everything's beautiful. And then of course just the run around the block in. Brooklyn. Brooklyn, is it? It's in Queens. Close, Queens, close. Queens. Wonderful. So before we close, is there anything else, Sandra, you want to share with everyone? And, and also, can you, can you give everyone, uh, well, first, anything last you want to share about the film? No, I, I don't have anything other than just, you know, remarking at like the smallness of, of the world and how you and I have were in the same rooms and, you know, maybe met, but I definitely remember some of the events that you were at in 95, yeah. 1995. And the fact that, you know, we could kind of like become friends again, almost 25 years later. It's crazy. It's just, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. It really is. And, and thank you for, thank you for this, Morgan. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for reaching out. And also, I mean, the fact was, yeah, also, we, we started college at exactly the same time in 1992 and obviously kind of have gone through a similar arc here. So, yeah, it's it's really been a joy and, and a privilege to interview you. I, I appreciate it. And so where, Sanjay, where can people learn more about you? And is there, a, is there also a website for the movie? Like, just share, can you share everything? Totally. So the the the, the I, people can find me on Instagram at Mr. Sanjay R S A N J Y, um, or at thirty one hundred film. Those are both accounts I monitor every day. The film website is thirty one hundred film dot com, and uh, yeah, you know, you if you if you watch the film, you know, go online, look at all the comments, and I mean, look at all the other photos and stuff, and chime in and make us a part of your journey too. Awesome. And uh, I will put all those websites and those links in the show notes, everybody. So you can go over to aboutmeditation.com and find the show notes there. Or, and of course, just go directly to the links. So great. Sanjay, thank you so much. Morgan, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. This was one of my all-time most favorite conversations. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Sanjay Rao. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and review in iTunes. That really has an enormous influence on the number of people that get exposed to our show. Just a simple rating and a review makes a huge difference for us. And please head over to aboutmeditation.com. 
You're welcome to check out the courses. We've got intro courses and we've got a little bit more advanced courses. If you're looking to start a meditation practice or you want to reboot your practice, uh, this is a great time of year to do it. We're dropping this show in the end of 2020. And yeah, check it out. I'd like to end with a quote. And today I'm going to end with two quotes. These are both from Sri Chinmoy and very pertinent to our interview with Sanjay. So the first one is about meditation. It goes like this. Meditation speaks. It speaks in silence. It reveals. It reveals to the aspirant that matter and spirit are one. Quantity and quality are one. The imminent and the transcendent are one. It reveals that life can never be the mere existence of 70 or 80 years between birth and death, but is, rather, eternity itself. And then here's a second quote. And it goes like this. The soul teaches the body never to accept any limitation.